Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Christopher Carmona. Dr. Christopher Carmona is an award-winning author and a member of the award-winning Refusing to Forget Project. He was recently inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters, which is an organization that recognizes serious writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, journalism, and scholarship. Carmona is also the author of El Rinche, The Ghost Ranger of the Rio Grande, and he's working on finishing this series of young adult novels. Bienvenido a este episodio, Christopher. Christopher, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Um, so um, I grew up in the, in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so um, born and raised there. Um, and uh, so my, my, I mean, this kind of all ties into everything. But yeah, so a lot of the the stuff I work on um, deals with the that place in particular and uh, my family's history, which goes back. 300 years at least to that, that one specific to this what we call South Texas, North, Northern Mexico. And so, you know, I've been, um, uh, so I'm right now, I'm at the Our Lady of the Lake, you know, and to run the, teach the Comparative Mexican American Studies program, as well as in the English department right now. Yes. Mm -hmm. What town in, uh, along the valley? Where did you grow up? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Donna, Texas, which, okay. uh, yeah, so it's like a small town mm -hmm, <laughs> right mm -hmm. there in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> did you grow up um, speaking English and Spanish? So, yes, um, that's kind of the, the part of the story here, or my story in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. I actually didn't speak in, in any uh, much English until I was about seven or so. Mm -hmm. Um, well, and what it really just changed everything was uh, there was something I wrote about. Um, when I was, uh, I remember when I was, um, the, my principal had called my parents in and then, um, didn't know what I had done. Um, and the next thing I knew, they, they, they always talked to us in English up to that point. Um, and it wasn't until years later, till I was an adult, that my, my father told me. Um, you know, that basically what the principal had told him is that, you know, that I had to speak English if I was going to succeed in this country, um, which is a strange thing because we're technically we're five generations in, but <laughs> anyway, yeah. but, um, you know, so basically that's what they took to heart was that, to, so they started talking to us in English. And mm -hmm. so mostly that was the way after that until years later when, you know, started to try to recover. Still, my grandparents still obviously spoke Spanish and everything, but it was really that, that, you know, I think a lot of uh, people went through, especially mm -hmm. in, the, in yeah. the early early 80s and 70s, mm -hmm. um, that uh, a lot of people don't talk about is this, um, you know, how we lose our language and how it's not really, I mean, and it's not really my parents' fault because they, you know, it was the system, it was the pressure Mm -hmm. of them to you know they want their kids to succeed so they're going right. to do what they can but it's you know 
it's only what recently where we've started to try and change that attitude. Yeah. yeah. And what you're saying reminds me a lot of Richard Rodriguez experiences, mm -hmm. right? Uh, where yeah. he, the, the nuns, uh, he was mm -hmm. going to a Catholic uh, school and the nuns came to t talk to the parents and say, mm -hmm. you know, only speak English to them. And, and that, yeah, you're, uh, I agree. There's a lot of that, um, those experiences for many people of our generation mm -hmm. um, that, you know, 70s, 80s, where uh, parents were told, um, you know, to to not speak Spanish or to, you know, switch to English primarily. Um, the sad thing is that um, while there's a lot of efforts to to push back, right, and to um, for many adults to um, relearn the language, right, um, there's also a lot um, in maybe uh, places like the Midwest where um, teachers are saying this mm -hmm. to parents still, right? Like, yes. um, or your child is behind in reading mm -hmm. um, without really acknowledging that it's not that they're behind, is that they're learning two languages. You know, they're still like working yes. with two languages and there's obviously a delay that's going to, mm -hmm. which is normal, our normal part of um dealing with multiple languages um so yeah mm -hmm. um i hear i've been hearing a lot of stories um on you know sort of those um that the need to recover that um the language lost and also you know some of the reasons often painful right why people mm -hmm. choose to um maybe um, not speak spanish to their children um mm -hmm. or there's that outside pressure right Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, Christopher, uh, when did you start writing and did you uh, write in English only initially or in Spanish or both? Or have you always, you know, uh, uh, written in two languages? So, um, I mean, I've always been a writer as long as I can remember. Um, I've always been a storyteller, it's kind of part of who I am. Um, when I first started to really, I guess, I guess I wouldn't say professionally write, but uh, seriously write, um, you know, I was, uh, that was really in college yeah, when I started to do that. And so, um, you know, um, I actually have uh, like my PhD is in writing rhetoric and poetics. So it's the whole study of, of writing. And, um, but the writing, I mean, a lot of it is, uh, is obviously, especially when you write academically is, uh, is, um, is primarily English, but when I do write creatively, it is a mixture and it's a mixture is because that's what I grew up hearing. I mean, that's what, that's the language that's around the, that, um, that, you know, most people I think are around. It's not usually just one, which is uh, different from a friend of mine who was taught that you only speak English or you only speak Spanish and you don't mix the two. Um, but, um, and then, you know, where I grew up, it was always mixed, you know, it was always mixed and, um, and you have this, so that, that's the reflection, you know, and the writings that I do for sure is, uh, that mixture of languages, but some words just don't translate. <laughs> exactly especially cultural mm -hmm. terms right they don't there's, there's no equivalent <laughs> yes. um, it's funny because you know at, sometimes my students ask me you know about language and and i mm -hmm. say well you know i can and we talk about mm -hmm. being bilingual and things like that mm -hmm. and i say well i can speak english only i can speak spanish only but my most um 
authentic self speaks in both languages, right? I've been and mm-hmm. I my um, native language is Spanish, uh, but I've been in the U.S longer than I was mm-hmm. in Mexico, right? Um, so to me, translanguaging is part of mm-hmm. it's part of who I am now, right? Uh, yes. Being able to to use both languages. So it's actually sometimes um, I uh, um, if I am among people that don't speak one language or the other, um, I have to like retrain myself to to stick to one <laughs> language so yes. that I don't lose them. But it is hard. Sometimes you don't even think about it, right? It just it mm-hmm. just happens. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that when, like, because uh, I, I mean, I moved from the Valley to San Antonio um, last year. And one of the things that is different here is um, there's a lot more English speaking people in the restaurants. And I'm mm-hmm. used to speaking to the waiters and the waitresses and Spanish. And so that that switch kind of gets flipped here differently. Yeah. Because <laughs> you yeah. start talking to them and then, you know, realize that they don't know Spanish or that they're not used to restaurant Spanish. Um, but that in the Valley, that's that's mostly like, like mostly what you get is that mm-hmm. so I was just used to, you know, ordering in Spanish, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yes, mm. that, that is true. I think I have noticed that too here. Um, in San Antonio. Um, so Christopher, tell me about your young adult novels. Uh, you describe them as uh, centering in heroes. And so t- yes. tell us why that is. So to kind of start off with um, what the young adult novels are, what they're doing. So the the, the when I was a kid, uh, so the term, even the title of the, of the series, El Vinche, the term Vinche is a term that uh, is primarily a, a South Texas term. Um, and it refers to the Texas Rangers. And that's where it comes from. Um, well, actually, I mean, my grandfather, who lived during that time, is where most of my stories come from. Um, he, you know, they didn't, they call them speeches, speeches. That's what they would call them. And my dad, you know, and everybody younger would call most of the inches, right? So um, there is that whole generational <laughs> difference. But um, yeah. it is a it's a, it's about a, a time frame which is um, roughly what's referred to as La Matanza, which uh, takes place um, roughly between 1910 and 1920 uh, on the border. Um, and it's a time when thousands of Mexican Americans. Mexicans uh, were terrorized, murdered, lynched by Texas Rangers and um, for their land. Because um, the, the, the Rio Grande Valley has a very different history than most of the rest of the country. What a lot of people don't know about the history of that area is from basically south of Corpus to north of Tampico was uh, Nuevo Santander, which was the land grant, right? A massive land grant that was given. Um, and amongst in that massive land grant was broken up into five major ranching families. And those five families ran these areas for 300 years. Um, and this, these lands um, in particular were, were often seen by, you know, Mexico, Spain, and, and the U.S. as undesirable lands because it was ranching land. Um, and ranching land, if anybody knows anything about ranches, are very rugged lands. Um, and so they were basically left on their own for a long time. So this is Northern Mexico, Tamaulipas, this whole area, and South Texas area. 
And so these these uh, families learned to create their own independent systems. They had uh, they had their own schools. They had their own churches. They ran the economies. We're looking at 300 years of basically being left alone. Um, and so what happens is when we, I mean, you can go into like what happens in the 19th century, but really what we're talking about is at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, we have a shift of, of, of economies in the U.S. and in Mexico, right? Because this is the time when we're going from the Diaz to to the Diaz regime to to um, the revolution, and then that entire everything shifting in America. We're going to the beginning or what's called the progressive era, and everything is being connected by railroad, right? And so, for the first time um, in 1905, is when the railroad comes to the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and around that time, America has a vested interest, and in one of their biggest uh, economic um, um, basically supplies is agriculture. Mm. And so, one of the, so what a lot of what they do is to try to 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 I mean, there's this has been happening for a while of taking lands from Mexican Mexican Americans mm. mm-hmm. since the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, right? This right. was the part of the process. But here it was mostly um, spearheaded by a lot of the Anglo ranchers. And at the beginning of the 20th century, Anglo corporations or white these corporations coming from the north that were starting to to look at these lands and see them as agriculturally based. Mm -hmm. And so they started to politically lobby and to try to basically first, uh, you know, try to take their basically ended up taking these lands from these Mexicans families, these Mexican-American families, um, because they weren't going to sell, right? Why would they? They've been doing this for 300 years. These are their lands. Um, And so during this time, is it's considered state-sponsored violence is because of what it was, is a lot of these people, the Rio Grande Land and Irrigation Company, where the the name Rio Grande Valley comes from, um, petitioned the state of Texas, and they got a grant to what we now call terraform these lands from ranching to agriculture Mm. that happened in 1905 which is what led to the railroad and led to the massive dispossession of lands and of um because they tried to buy them out and when that didn't work they turned to violence taking them yeah by force Mm -hmm. and then you have the governor who says at this time the texas rangers were just a special branch of the governor's office so Mm. they were not a standardized law enforcement agency. Mm. And so what the governor told these these uh, ranchers and these these corporations is, you know, you can they can utilize the rangers and whatever they do, they will not be prosecuted. Mm. Um, so this is a letter that was found like back in 2015 between the governor and Sterling, wow. which is one of the ranchers. So just recently this was discovered. Yes. Um, But during this time, a lot of these people down here were terrorized. There was um, people estimating to the thousands of people killed, um, basically for land, for their lands. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's there's a couple of famous things that have recently gone out, like the Fort Vineyard Massacre out in El Paso, Mm -hmm. where where the Texas Rangers were involved in massacring all the men and boys over the age of, of, of 13. Um, but there's a lot of these massacres that occurred down in South Texas. Well, my grandfather and, and my family lived through these times, and we had a, a, a ranch, which is now small. Very, I think they said they finally sold it off, but it had been in our family for a while. 
Um, and so our family was affected by this violence. And when I was a, when I was a young boy, my grandfather would tell me these stories about the Rinches. And um, and so the Rinches themselves, like these stories, um, I would only hear obviously when he was when he was drinking, right? So he'd these come out with these horrific stories. Um, and then, uh, and so, like, it wasn't until really years later that I realized the significance of, of these stories and what happened. Mm. And that's what happens. I mean, you're eight years old, you're not going to understand. But at the same time, I'm, you know, watching all the stuff on TV, like all the Lone Ranger stuff, all the cowboy and Western stuff, you know. And um, it really wasn't so, I think it was somewhere around 2013 or so, um, that I was at a conference here. Um, in San Antonio, and I was talking with a friend of mine, Sonia Sondevat Hull, who's at UTSA, mm-hmm. and, we're, and she's originally from Brownsville, and we're talking about the beaches. And there was a graduate student there from UCLA who was a, who was a, grad, who was a PhD student in Chicano studies, and she said she never heard any of these stories. She said mm. The only thing she knew about the Rangers was Walker, Texas Ranger, and the Lone Ranger, mm. which is where the seed was planted as to, you know, you know why? So I was like, "All right." And I think uh, this was the as a writer is like, "I think I need to address this." And so I started to look. Right? I started to look at the and it's not in the history books. Nowhere right. is it mm-hmm. mentioned. And it's like, but these are the stories that I grew up hearing. So what happened? So this is what started the process to to really start researching it. But by this time, my grandfather's in his nineties. He has Alzheimer's, so I can't really ask him about those stories anymore. So it starts the whole process of interviewing. Um, mm-hmm. descendants and you know survivors and people so it was really a long process of of, of, of getting involved this is also where refusing to forget mm-hmm. at the same time starts to be formed because it's not just myself but the, these other historians and and, and right. scholars who start to think about we need to tell these story we need to get this information out for me as a writer and it was really also, I think it was 2015 when that horrible Lone Ranger movie came out with Johnny Depp, mm-hmm. who was uh, dressed as a complete caricature of a Native American. And Johnny Depp is not Native whatsoever at all. Right, right. Um, I just want to make that clear to people. They, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, no, he's not. But what really, what really upset me when that movie came out, um, at the very beginning of that movie, um, the Tonto character is in a museum. He's like a living exhibit, right? Mm. And so in Native American indigenous studies, this is a very painful, traumatic thing. Um, mostly because there is a, a figure that most people in studying Dixon studies was called Ishi. And he was the last of his tribe who was in who basically was forced to live in a museum for the rest, for most of like 20, 30 years, right? Mm. As a living exhibit. And this is a, is a scar. It's a huge trauma to right. the indigenous. And so when you see this up on the screen, for someone who studied this, it's it's a huge slap in the face to mm-hmm. indigenous mm-hmm. peoples, to our histories, right? So that was my response. Like, we need a care, we need something to respond. I need to respond. And as a writer, and especially around, you know, when I first started working on this, we don't have any real um, Latino superheroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, there just wasn't the representation. You can see all the Marvel movies and all these things that are out there now. Right. How many Latino superheroes are there? Barely one. Maybe mm-hmm. America Chavez, that's in Doctor Strange. 
um, there are Latino characters, but they're usually like the just the, the you know the sidekicks, the humor, right? Right. They're not. Right. They're not the heroes. They're not the main characters. And you, and of course, our representation is is horrible in the media. Or e- they're either represented as sex pots, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're represented as criminals, mm-hmm. workers, and yeah. so there are representation for a superhero for for someone who represents who a positive message, right? This is one of the reasons I wanted to turn this idea of the Lone Ranger around, and so I created this character, this idea, which at first started off as a response to that movie, ended up becoming something very different. Um, so the character himself is the son of a landowner um who is a light-skinned mexicano Mm -hmm. with green eyes um who is you know they're ambushed by texas rangers left for dead and he's picked up and rescued by a native american and uh, another um an african-american man named bass reeves who is a real person so bass Mm -hmm. reeves this is kind of a good caveat there's a lot of real people in these books Mm -hmm. um bass reeves was the most successful lawman in the u.s history you know, um, but nobody knows about him. Um, so Bass Reeves uh, is also the archetype for the Lone Ranger. When those two, uh, I forget where they are, the, the names of the guys who wrote the original Lone Ranger radio show in the 1920s and 30s, they were, they were, their, their studio was across the street from prison, a very famous federal prison in Detroit, and they started to interview all the prisoners. And so there's this one guy, and they were referring to Bass Reeves. And so, but it's the 1920s and 30s. You can't have a black man as a hero. So they give him a black mask. But everything that all the stories and everything that are in the show are Bass Reeves' life. And Bass mm. Reeves was an African-American U.S. Marshal. And the you know, the whole idea, because he, he operated in, in Reconstruction era in what is northern Texas, you know, southern Oklahoma and western Arkansas was Cherokee territory. So in order to operate there, you had to have a Native American partner, an Native American, mm. which is where the Tonto character comes from. Mm-hmm. And then that character, that person is actually named Grant Johnson. Um, that's the real um, Tonto. But anyway, so I bring him in because he is a, the real Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he ends up being the mentor to this character who starts to guide him and, and create this kind of superhero persona. So the, the superhero persona is a ghost of a Texas Ranger mm-hmm. that that people think that they're seeing. So he fights against the Texas Rangers. They call him mm-hmm. a which is what the, the community calls him. Um, and so he because he's like, he looks white, he's able to pass himself look white. Mm-hmm. And so this is where the concept comes. And then of course they start to fight this, the, all the stuff that's happening. And um, and so this is the concept of the of the character and the story. Um, but you know, there's two things. One is to tell this, I wanted to tell this history to get this history out there. Right. Because, you know, my you know, after my generation you know my nephews and everybody younger doesn't know these stories right right so that's that's not something that we ha- i mean we are we yeah. already have a lot of challenges with um you know uh censorship and the mm-hmm. k-12 system right we're going through that again um where um the governor and others mm-hmm. uh, want to limit uh what we teach or how we teach um yes. and so this Texas Ranger history that you're talking about still hasn't been 
implemented mm-hmm. into our schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so your so, nephews, yeah. right, don't know about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do because well, we've told them, but well, the, yeah. younger gener- <laughs> the younger generation doesn't know this history. Mm-hmm. Most people think that the Rio Grande Valley started in 1919 or something. Mm-hmm. They don't realize this is a whole Mexican history mm-hmm. that happened before then with educated peoples, because a lot mm-hmm. of these landowners were educated. They sent their kids to college. Jovita mm-hmm. um, was uh, one of these people who came from a major family. And Jovita Yedad, you know, is now being recognized as a, as a pioneering journalist, mm-hmm. leader in education. She's going to be on the U.S. quarter, right? But right. she came from this area, so in this mm-hmm. area, and she was writing against the Texas Rangers. She's one of the heroes of this era. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. she's also a character in the books. Um, but you have families who are educating their children. And what most people don't see or they, they just don't tell that history beforehand, because then you get a, then you have to deal with what happened for 10 years. Where's that 10 year gap? What was going on? Right. Well, they were being mm-hmm. massacred. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and their land mm-hmm. was being stolen. And then we have to deal with the fact that this is not, you know, that we have not always been migrant workers. We have not always been. Right poor peoples that we were educated and we had power and mm-hmm. they're dealing with that and that's one of the things is like mexican americans oh they're not educated mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. for a long time we were very educated um but that history has been erased right um okay. mm-hmm. and so you know i didn't grow up hearing that in school right like well we used to have a lot of power money and education these were very educated people my fifth great grandmother is um, uh, Estefana um, Cavazos de Cortina, who is Juan Cortina's mother. Juan Cortina is a very famous, what they call him a bandit here in the U.S., who actually occupied Brownsville in the 1850s. Hmm. But uh, we're related to the Cavazos line, which is her first cousin. But she is um, a very important figure because she's the one who established the Escuelita system in hmm. the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. And she established a lot. And so, but we don't learn about the fact that she's the one that established the education system. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. Southwest. So another hero, uh, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we have these figures that are in that. And so with that, the, when we start to learn about it, it starts in the 20th century. It's like, well, we have a whole history mm-hmm. of people. And so this is kind of the idea behind why I want to tell these younger people where you come from. Mm-hmm. I want to tell, mm-hmm. but also want to, you know, as a writer, especially as a creative writer, you want to give the information in a way that they, you know. Right. <laughs> so me, so is this, superhero. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's fun, right? It's fun to, like, read about that. And so yeah. uh, in the book, um, as you're telling the story, you know, and then you mentioned that there's real some real people mm-hmm. right in there. Um is there an invitation for like digging deeper into who these people are or were? Um, what what do yes. you hope that you know young people that read that, especially those in you know the South Texas mm-hmm. uh, on the borderlands? What do you hope that happens after they read? Well, yeah, that is it. I mean, uh, so um, this is something that Monica Munoz Martinez and I have talked about. So. We're, we you know our, our books go back. Uh, we, we were actually our books are published at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, hers is and the injustice never leaves you. And so we were doing a lot of the same work because hers is an oral 
or the history of all this, right? But hers is, mm -hmm. is look at talking. She puts down the oral history of it, and I'm taking a more fictionalized account. Mm -hmm. But um, so we were talking about this, and we we're saying that you know that we want people to understand that this history is part of of America too. Mm -hmm. um, but for the younger generations to start, because that's already happening, right? The younger generations are starting to wanting to become more educated in this area, wanting mm -hmm. to become, and, um, you know, I've talked to, to students when I've done readings in high schools and different things like that, who now want to learn about this, who want to mm -hmm. go and investigate and like, what is the history of this area? Mm -hmm. What, you know, it's not, it's not simply just a localized thing though, because the Texas Rangers were all over Texas, but they're also a national international symbol. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, there's so many movies made around about them. Right. 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 And they're always the heroes, right? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, but it's all, it's always like as the heroes, not necessarily yes. their truth. The, and <laughs> yeah. the truth is that for most people of color in this world, they were not heroes at all. Mm -hmm. they right. They were the villains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that is to get people interested in this, to realize that history also is entangled with a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. that our history is also complicated um absolutely but to be a part of american history right? because i imagine too right like some um maybe not initially but later on some of the texas rangers just like mm -hmm. immigration officers were also uh, mexican-american right and and oh, that yeah, becomes very problematic for in many uh, yes. ways mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes um, i mean um yeah there there were mexican-american rangers since the beginning mm -hmm. that is a problematic mm -hmm. thing they also have people like you know Juan again who served who fought in the texas revolution and what people don't realize about the texas revolution is actually fought over slavery mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and we don't teach yeah. it that way in texas but that is right. the actual truth it's written in the letters that they're writing it's in the texas constitution it was about slavery because mm. Mexico outlawed slavery, right? And way into sooner, and, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot sooner mm. than than the U.S. and then and you know the Anglo's didn't like that, mm. and so that's why they did the Texas Revolution, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. So that gets me back to asking you about this uh, initiative of refusing to forget. When did it start? And and obviously the way that you've mm. um, sort of talked about your work as a mm. uh, as a fiction writer. It's um, not removed from all of this other mm -hmm. initiatives, right? Because there is this, um, you know, interest in educating um, ourselves and mm -hmm. younger generations. Uh, there's also this need to, um, you're also actively involved in Mexican-American studies, mm -hmm. right? At your institution and just uh, a mm -hmm. wide, you know, it's a wide initiative across Texas specifically um, of uh, bringing this content into, you know, the K through 12 um, mm -hmm. curriculum and also at our universities. So talk to us a little bit about sort of this uh, work um, and what fruits, you know, que, yes. que frutas ves de todo este, de los frutos del trabajo, de, sí. um, you know, and how this all con is connected. Mm -hmm. I enjoy, by yes. the way, your post, um, yes. you know, about like this day in history, this happened. Oh, and, yes. and it's like me, you know, I, um, 
I grew up in in Mexico in a border town, mm-hmm. but it, I I also you know was very limited in my understanding of the history of the borderlands, and it wasn't until later on as an adult and college students that student that I began right to to dig a little deeper, mm-hmm. and I continue to learn you know as I'm now here in Texas to learn more about um, the, the history around me. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that, I mean, refusing to forget to kind of start there, we this started, um, I want to say about 2014, 2015. And it, it was really um, at a, I forget what kind of conference it was, where originally it was the first five members, which were Trinidad Gonzalez, uh, Benjamin Johnson, Monica Menos Ortines, um, Sonia Hernandez, and John Moran Gonzalez met to start to put together an initiative to talk about this history. And when this started up, um, as I've known Trini and Sonia for a long time, I would go to Trini and them a lot for the, because I was working on the books about like, you know, the history parts and when, because there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of documented history, right? So they were the experts on this. And as, as Refusion to Forget started to grow and get more attention, that's when I ended up, uh, and they asked me to join the um, uh, Refusing to Forget. And a lot of what we do is bring this history out because it's not just about what happened 100 years ago. Well, we deal a lot with stuff, especially um, recently with the Uvalde shooting and how that connects to this violence against the community. Um, right. And so we're still dealing with a lot of this. We get, you know, this is, we've been, you know, uh, contacted by Amazon Studios to be historical consultants on, you know, different show like well, Giant, which we're trying to redo, um, and things like that. We get these, these, and it's turned into more of a national thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as we just as, as the you know reason for guests keeps on getting awards because of the public work that we're doing. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, to bring this history out, and then. Um, you know, I've, I've uh, there's a little town, San Diego, Texas, um, where the there was these three men that were murdered there by the Texas Rangers, and that little county, that little town, you know, invited me to go speak, um, and it was the first time ever that a county would recognize that these these men were killed by the Texas mm-hmm. Rangers. Mm-hmm. This was 1920 when it happened. So this is like 2022, right? When this when this happened. So I went out there. I mean, a town like with 300 people. So there was literally over 200 people in there. They were all family wow. members of the men who wow. were murdered. Mm-hmm. And you can see the pain, mm-hmm. the trauma that still exists 100 years after that happened. Right, right. And as they had the granddaughters there and they gave them the the, the proclamations and their lighting mm-hmm. candles and I was talking to them. Um, and that is the effect that these people's stories for how are being told and recognized mm-hmm. that is why we do the work we do as refusing to forget because it's not really about all the papers and everything but we are affecting communities like these right. communities they're real are people mm-hmm. real people with their histories finally being recognized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i mean when you get 200 people show up in a little courtroom in the middle of town because these are all the families of these people that were murdered mm-hmm. they're there and they're there to recognize that Mm-hmm. That is power. That's a powerful statement. Right. As validation as um in a way, I think closure, right? I like, like this mm-hmm. did happen. No estamos mm-hmm. locos, right? We're yes. not no lo estamos inventando. This this mm-hmm. really did happen. It affected us, our community. Um, so there is that sort of validation that 
yes, yeah. this happened. Let's let's acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, they were called like you know they were called bandits, right? And they weren't mm-hmm. bandits. And mm-hmm. So this uh, kind of recognition that they were not they were not criminals. That right. These were just and um, and that is a and that that really held a huge response for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, that's the kind of effect. So when we talk about younger generations and things, and how this is important, why is it important mm-hmm. to to um, to remember this to, these these events, to remember this history, to be connected to this history, is because it's about justice, right? Mm-hmm. It's about a justice. Even though it happened a hundred years ago, these people have not had justice right. for a hundred years. And right. what does that do, right? What does that do to people psychologically? It's it, you know it creates this this kind of self doubt self hatred dissolution you know, mm-hmm. dissolution and we mm-hmm. get all these so psychologically justice helps to heal us mm-hmm. um, as people and help us grow from these traumas right and so we talk about what are the actual and so um, I remember when I did my first book I did a presentation at a high school um in brownsville and at the end of it there was this little boy this uh, this young man who came up to me and he said do you know who anasita pazania was and anasita pazania was a revolutionary during the madansa times Mm. and he was actually going to be a major character in the second book which hadn't come out yet um and he said and i said yeah i know who he is he said that was my great great grandfather wow and he said, since that has happened, I'm the first one to be going to college since mm. since that since the hundred years, five generations right. of people who lost everything. Because I also the Basanya was a rich landowner. Mm-hmm. He was well educated. Um, and when that happened, when they attacked him and they took everything from him, forced him to become a revolutionary, um, he lost everything. That family mm. lost everything. And they became you know, what migrant workers and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And it says he's the first one in five generations to be going to college. Mm-hmm. And um, to have someone talk about what happened to him, that gave him like a sense of pride, right? That, that you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So reaching people who are still directly affected. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, this is not like ancient history. Right? Mm-hmm. We're still talking to descendants Mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of people who are not that far away we're talking you know a couple of generations right right and so that that impact is what you know talk about why this is important history right why this is important work but mm-hmm. also mexican-american studies so for me i didn't really get any training in mexican-american studies until i was in my phd program mm-hmm. that is so late right that is so <laughs> it late. happens a lot of us <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, yes. that's a common story because, you know, <laughs> right. that didn't exist when we were going to grad school, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't hear about ethnic studies programs and MOS programs mm-hmm. or anything. We had to be the ones to kind of break through all that. Mm-hmm. And so, when, especially when I, when I was getting there and I was reading Florence Adua in grad school, I'm like, why didn't I not read this? Mm-hmm. When I was not even an undergraduate, but when I was in high school. Yeah, a writer from the valley right yeah mm-hmm. she was a nationally internationally recognized scholar mm-hmm. um now i'm early reading her in a phd program <laughs> right. way i mean so that's what really got me i need to st- we I, you know if i had this when i was younger what well, where would i be right now mm-hmm. how different would every you know how much more would i be able to do right mm-hmm. and so this is my reason as to why i want to get this information to younger people right, right. because right. The younger we get them, as you know, the more that they will be 
the more consciousness they'll have in, in college mm-hmm. and, and how much more can they do to change things right Absolutely. and so for me that that's what's what it was is i didn't get it i didn't get it right so now i'm going to try to give it to younger people because it, it you know it opens something when you start to see this Right. And you're bringing this history um, both as a teacher and as a writer, which is I think it's a really neat um, combination. Right. Where you Mm -hmm. can uh, maybe even when you go Mm -hmm. in the readings um, at schools and they ask you, you can right there (laughs) give like a little history lesson. Right as well but um have you um what what has been what have you seen so far is the um like reaction or reception of the stories with especially so, with younger mm-hmm. yeah so they're usually very positive um I, i've done a couple like a couple of comic cons even mm-hmm. though my books are not comic books or but they are superhero Mm-hmm. And those those um, comic con kids, they know these books like inside and out and, wow. and stuff, and they're invested in it because they're seeing themselves mm-hmm. in literature. I was talking to one student. He says, you know, that he, he that he he was that little kid. You know, mm-hmm. he was the because the the main character when he was a little kid was like the little bookish kid. He was small. <laughs> you know, he wasn't the the favorite son. And he mm-hmm. said he could relate to that. He understood that being the weddle in the family, right? <laughs> and you know, so you're talking to people who can understand, the, you know, these human experiences like being the weddle, the one who's always being called that, and what that means, right? And how that affects you, and you know, seeing this this character grow into something, right? And so, mm-hmm. I think that um, representation matters, right? Right, absolutely. And absolutely. so, and I think the the effect, for, especially with the younger readers, has been very positive. Um, you know, it's uh, obviously you get mixed uh, results when you start dealing with different populations, but mostly the younger, the younger people, I, I don't have like they were usually very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a reading in places where it's mostly like old white people. Um, <laughs> that's a very different story. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but um, you know, and also you know, we're taking on a you know I'm taking on a major Texas symbol. Mm-hmm. which is yes, the Texas right. Strangers. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, um, you know, especially with Revision Again, the work we do, we've gotten a lot of backlash mm-hmm. um, uh, from, you know, these more conservative place spaces. And, you know, like, oh, it's like, but the fact is that this is the truth, right? We're, we're grounded in real history. Mm-hmm. This is not a myth that you guys made up because John Wayne, you know. Right. Was, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of where we get this this horrible history. Right? Absolutely. Yes, I know. I know about those movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um uh, but yeah, this the younger, I mean, the younger audiences seem to like, especially across the country. I've done these presentations like in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done the presentations in, you know, California, all these different places. Um, you know, I'm going to be doing a reading here in December in like Minnesota, which is going to be mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. And so I was like, well, they have apparently they have a uh, a large Mexican American population there. Where <laughs> are you going in Minnesota and Minneapolis? Um, yeah, Minneapolis. Yeah, and, there's uh, several places like pockets, right, of mm-hmm. um, Latinos or Chicanos, and throughout the Midwest. So yeah, yes. hopefully you have a lot of good. Um, conversations there yeah because uh, that history needs to go everywhere right like you said mm-hmm. it's not just like um uh an, an uh texas 
um, Mexicano symbol, history, yeah. right? Like, or yeah. His, yeah the t- but it was a nationwide um, uh, yeah. group, Trust. right? That that was elevated to a status that did not deserve, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, how do we challenge that? And how do we teach our young generations wherever they are? Uh, not just in Texas, right? Um, that's, so, that's great. Well, also, I mean, we're still dealing with police brutality. Mm-hmm. And I think that connects, especially with African-American kids, because I've done presentations like at Booker T. Washington High School, which is primarily African-American, and they connect with it because they Absolutely. understand mm-hmm. the police brutality, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the terror of these organizations, which are mm-hmm. these white men who are mm-hmm. terrorizing the, the communities. Um, so even in my books, though, I do include a lot of that, the histories mm-hmm. that were happening, because it's not just Mexican-American history, it's African-American history. Right. There's Native American history. There's also Asian-American history, because mm-hmm. um, South Texas had a large population of Japanese mm-hmm. immigrants. And right, so, right. And so there's all these mixtures of people that people think that, oh, there was all Mexican. Well, it's never always been one thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's always been. Especially a in the population. South, right? South Texas had a a Japanese camp. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, Crystal City, right? And so, so how do, yeah, how do we tell the stories of those communities also that were in our state? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like international national histories that are interwoven into these novels. So the Japanese Americans or the Japanese peoples actually came in the late 1880s. I mean, in San Antonio, you have the uh, the tea gardens and, and all that mm-hmm. stuff here. But in South Texas, like and, and, and on where South Padre Island is and all that, mm-hmm. um, those were refugees from a massive war that happened in Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's two major colonies. And they actually, the Japanese actually helped the Mexican and uh, trained the Mexican army in martial arts. And they worked in munitions um, during the Mexican Revolution. I mean, there's a lot of this history that's woven um and um and so i i weave that in there also be the african-american histories because the same time that is happening mm-hmm. um the red summers are happening mm-hmm. matter, this is like a huge time for the kkk and not just mm-hmm. in, in texas as well where they were targeting african-american communities they were bulldozing ending with you know tulsa uh, mm-hmm. tulsa race massacre this is mm-hmm. all the same time people don't realize this is all happening at the same time in america right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to weave those in, but I think that the, the kids themselves, because I usually have them do a little exercise when I do a workshop where they try to tell their cultural stories. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to this one kid uh, from, he was originally from Brooklyn, and he's saying that he didn't have any cultural stories. So what he wrote were the, the superhero stories he grew up reading as a kid, the comic mm-hmm. book stories. And those are the stories he wrote, and so I think those are cultural stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, how we connect, like, that's, you know, when we start thinking about how they're disconnected from these, but they have their own little hero stories, too. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Christopher, what are you working on right now? I know you're working mm-hmm. on this series. Is there anything else that, that you're working on? So, um, this this month coming up, well, I'm, I'm about to release my latest book of poetry it's been five years since the last book mm. of poetry mm-hmm. so this is a book of poems that go encompasses the last five years um so i haven't published poetry in a while but that's going to be i'm going to be releasing that within the next month or so 
the third book, uh, the third volume of the Vinci series, I've finished the draft. It's going through copy editing right now. So hopefully the third book will be out early next year. Mm. Um, and so that series has four books to it. And so the last book, um, I'm hoping to get out um, within the next year or so too. But um, so those that's mostly what I'm working on at this moment. We're still finishing the series. That's on top of doing, you know, yes. refusing to forget, <laughs> teaching, all of that. Yes. So that's great. Yes. Well, uh, thank you so much, Christopher, for mm -hmm. this conversation. I look forward to hearing more about your work and, um, and you know, working with you in any way mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah. Thank you.